Hi and welcome to episode 81 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing career, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. There's a great back catalogue of guests there including authors, screenwriters, comic writers, video game writers, comedians, journalists. So please do check that out. There's bound to be some names you want to listen to. Uh, How's your week been Tarek? Well you can probably tell by the poor quality of my voice on this episode that I'm actually on the phone because my internet's been turned off 10 days early so thanks very much Virgin Media that's that's, that's really handy I've been burning through my mobile hotspot just to try and watch Netflix (laughs) Uh, well at least at least we've got you in this intro which uh, I know many of our (laughs) listeners are are keen for Um, (laughs) uh, but are you going to tell us about this week's guest I am indeed. This week we're chatting with Mr. C. Robert Cargill, who has had a very varied writing uh, career. He's started off writing for film reviews, um, Ain't It Cool News. He started mm-hmm. off there back in the day when that was and that was quite a big website. Yeah, when it was started. massive. Yeah, yeah, and then he, he went on to do film uh, film scripts. He's written Sinister, Doctor mm-hmm. Strange, um, and he's also written a number of books: Day Zero, Sea of Rust. He's really quite a quite an accomplished writer i have to say yeah no he's got a really interesting career path and mm. we talked to him about how he you know ain't it cool news.com it was like certainly for me the first sort of film review site on the internet it was there in the yeah at, at the start of the internet almost and yeah um you know he he talks about how the access that he got through that was almost like a film school for him and he got contacts within the industry and stuff and I think that's how he met Scott Derrickson who ended up uh, working with so much on Sinister and Doctor Strange and, and various other films as well so um, it's a really interesting chat and and uh, Cargo also as he likes to call himself also um, you know he's someone that if you follow him on Twitter he gives out lots of writing advice so he's got lots of good mm-hmm. hints and tips for people mm-hmm. wanting to write whether it's for screenwriting or novel writing so um, we won't hold it up anymore we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest and Tarek we have an email to read out oh what that's that must be our second one I think it is in fact our second email <laughs> in 81 episodes and the first one not first one not from my mum <laughs> <laughs> right let's get straight into the podcast before my dog goes mental <laughs> The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, 
or making a quick note on her phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. I always start these podcasts with the same question, which is, did you always want to be a writer? With you, I read that, um, you know, you got your start reviewing movies, but I read that you you said that your goal was always to write fiction at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, uh, started, uh, I I wanted to be a writer when I was eight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I I had... uh, it's a, it's a funny story. I, uh, um, I had a huge crush on Drew Barrymore. Um, that's uh, how I became a writer. Um, I had a huge crush on Drew Barrymore at the exact same age. And, um, uh, I wanted to see her new movie. And my parents were like, we're, we're not taking you to see her new movie. And I'm like, no, 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 I heard about her new movie. And my parents were like, we're not taking you to a Stephen King movie. And, um, so my aunt bought me a copy of Firestarter that had a picture of little Drew Barrymore <laughs> on the cover and my, gave it to me. And my parents were like, why did you give our son a Stephen King novel? And she's like, he's not going to read it. He's just going to look at the picture of the girl in the front. Like, let him be a cute little kid. Um, and I read that thing cover to cover three times. <laughs> and, uh, when I was eight years old and at the, by the third time I read it, I was like, wait a second, the Stephen King guy, he wrote this book and got paid to write this book. I could grow up and do that for a living. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for the time I was eight, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know what kind of writer. And as I was growing up, you know, that bounced around. I wanted to write books. I wanted to write movies. At the time I was 13, I read a review of uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead, uh, part two. And um, uh, and it dawned on me halfway through reading this, which I'd read many reviews before, but it dawned on me that this is a job I could have, go to see movies and then write about them. So why wouldn't I want to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, that was added to the bucket list of things I wanted to do for a living. And I started out trying to write novels. And um, uh, I had a horrible agent situation uh, when I was 23, 24 where it turns out I, I was with a scam agent. And oh, right. It turned out to be a famously scam agent at the time who represented hundreds of clients and only sold one book. Um, uh, to this day, they claim that it wasn't a scam, that it was a new business model that failed. Uh, but uh, it was it was a scam. And so that really kind of broke me and destroyed me. And I, I kind of quit being a writer for six months. And my wife and my roommate were both like, no, you got to do that. You got to do that. It. But then I got invited by a friend to come and write for uh, a website. And then another friend read that review and was like, you need to come write for us. And that was a cool news. 
And when I got into making cool news, that just kind of took off. And then I had a 10 year career as a film critic. And at that point, it was like I always wanted to write fiction. So I used that 10 years as a film critic as a, a you know, a critical studies program. Mm-hmm. Where essentially I was assigned movies every week that I had to review, and then I they were graded by the internet, uh, the coolest, harshest mistress <laughs> in the world, um, and uh, and that's it, that is pretty much the the origin of how I became a writer uh, was uh, through that process of just always wanting to do it. I mean, I was always writing when I was younger. Uh, uh, the whole reason my name is my professional name is C. Robert Cargill is because when I was 15 years old, I started sending in um, uh, editorials to the local newspapers. But I wanted to make sure they didn't think I was some 15-year-old kid. So <laughs> I realized if I initialized my name, I would sound like an adult. So Steve Robert Cargill was bored out of trying to convince people that I wasn't a 15-year-old kid sending in editorials to the paper. A smart move. And did, uh, did that time writing reviews as well, as well as sort of, um, being a, a sort of course of, you know, learning what works in films and what doesn't and stuff. In terms of your writing skills as well, did, did that help hone your writing skills? Cause you were having to write reviews so often and presumably find that even though it's reviews, you're still wanting to have a sort of consistent voice so that people know what your reviews are like and whether they agree or disagree and things like that. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and what it really did was the thing was, is I, I came up in the dawn of the internet. Um, you know, I was actually just talking with someone about this this week. When I wrote my first review, it was six years after the internet had gone public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, had access. So the internet hadn't even formed into anything resembling what it is now. Um, it was still a complete mess. Search engines, um, uh, uh only had mapped out 11% of the internet. Um, uh, the best ones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you, you could know exactly what you were looking for at that time and still not be able to find it, uh, because it was just, it was the wild west. And, uh, at the time, what was really, we were trying to, um, establish ourselves as being, um, relevant, uh, because people didn't, the, the mainstream did not take anything online as being real. Mm-hmm. That was this fad that was going on. Print is where it's at. Print is forever. Magazines and newspapers are never going away. The internet is just its thing. And so we had to constantly find ways to make ourselves more relevant than print, to make people be drawn to reading our stuff. And uh, one of the big ways we did that was being able to write reviews before Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were catering to alpha phone goers. But what that meant was... When you saw the movie, you would see the movie at 7.30 at night. You'd get out at 9.30. You'd be home by 10. And then you needed to have that thing in by midnight. Yeah. So you you were taking that drive home to think about what your review is going to be. And then cranking out a review in an hour or two. Um, you know, or sometimes it was, it was a particularly tough or mealy review. You would, you would dig in and have it in at, you know, 3.34 in the morning. But they, we wanted that review up so that when people woke up the next day, they were reading a review on Tuesday or Wednesday for a movie coming out on Friday, and that had value. And so you had to write well quickly. Mm-hmm. And so um, so the idea of sitting down and writing a 1,000 to 2,000 words in a single sitting and do it in an hour or two um, was the skill that I got to develop 
over over that time. And it also uh, taught me how to juggle because sometimes you'd see more than one movie in a day. Sometimes uh, at a, a film festival, you'd see three, four, or five movies in a day. You would then go home and have to write up. So if I learned how to compartmentalize different projects so that I could do something like I just did last night where I worked on three different projects last night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did this revisions for a director at one point, And once that was done, I flipped the switch in my brain and then sat down and started working on another project. Uh, and those are things that I learned from 10 years of necessity of having to do it as an early online filmmaker. And during that, that time as well, you were also, you were writing what films you, you were meeting folk in the film industry, you, um, behind the scenes people. You also got some small acting roles, I think, in movies. So was that real, a real opportunity for you to kind of immerse yourself in the world of film? Absolutely. Yeah, no, in fact, that was the, that was the great thing about this version of film school is I got to stand on sets with directors and watch them direct and then ask them questions about their process. Mm. Uh, just like what you guys are doing here with this podcast, I was being able to do that on set. I was able to, you know, just ask these questions or I would go and talk to, uh, you know, I'd go and do interviews or things like that. And that was the thing about Eight at Cool News is we were known as being this, you know, counterculture group. And we would be asking very different questions than what would you'd ask in the normal press. We'd be mm-hmm. talking about deeper stuff, nerdy stuff. Uh, you know, people wanted to learn about how directors thought and the structure of their films and go deep into that type of stuff that you wouldn't get out of a normal publicity interview. So we were actually able to ask and we were expected to ask harder questions um, and dig deeper into that stuff. And, uh, and so, yeah, I got to learn a lot and then see the process of things getting made, uh, and just dig deep into, to how, you know, the nitty gritty of that stuff. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was an amazing film school. And did, did that ever pose a problem in some way, I suppose, in the sense that as, as you grew to new more people in the industry, if you're then having to write a review, for example, of a film, of someone that you you know and maybe get on with, does, does, is there any conflict there at all, or how does that work? Well, there, oh yes, there's plenty of conflict, and you have to be mindful of that conflict. Um, you know, that's the uh, that's one of the. In fact, that's the thing a lot of my friends had to learn after I started making movies. They were like, "Oh, we have to review this movie, Sinister, and this is made by somebody we came up with. Like, how do we do this?" And and you just have to kind of be honest about any connections you have. Or, you know, um, uh, put the, the review, that particular review off on someone else who doesn't have that. Review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, fortunately, it never came around to, to bite me in the ass. I never had a situation where somebody I was really friendly with made something truly terrible that I had to, to you know, burn down. Um, but uh, it's uh, uh, there are, of course, those conflicts. But the thing is, is that the reason I had the reputation I did, the reputation I fostered over 10 years was that I was always fair, mm-hmm. um, that I was o- always honest and fair, and that I was not writing to advance my career. I was writing to connect with the audience. And the audience got that out of my work where they knew when they were sitting down to read a review of mine that I wasn't doing, I wasn't writing that review just for the clicks or I wasn't writing that review um, to do favors for friends in the industry. I was writing that review for them. Um, so that they could find a movie that maybe they would have turned their nose up at, or that they could, um, uh, 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 you know, avoid something that 
is going to be a waste of their time that weekend mm-hmm. that they should check out later and go see this other film that you haven't even heard of and avoid this thing. This thing is just a, a big hot mess. You're just going to be angry about it on the internet for a week. And so, uh, because I fostered that reputation by the time I started meeting people, um, uh, in the industry, they knew me by that reputation. And so they knew, oh, hey, you know, Cargill's kind of a wild card. It's not somebody. In fact, the one thing that did hurt me in that respect was there would be certain publicists that would invite all of the cool news guys, but wouldn't invite me because they're like, we don't know if Cargill's going to like this movie or not because we don't know, his, <laughs> we don't understand his taste. And we certainly don't want him slagging us. So maybe we don't show it to him. Uh, and that was a badge of honor for me when I first, when I got that first call, like, Hey, I know you heard about the screening, but they asked specifically, you know, comments like, yeah, yeah <laughs> all right. I'll take, I'll, I'll take the publicist being scared of me. Uh, and I'll wear that like a badge. Uh, that's great. I mean, is that something that's quite important? You think when you look at reviewers, cause there's always kind of two ways that I look at these things. One, you can get the review, which is just a generic kind of review, you know, tells you what the film's about. Uh, um, and and you can and you can decide for yourself whether or not you want you want to see that or the review where you kind of follow the person who writes it and you kind of get to know them and what their interests are and if you kind of think well, well my interests align with this guy so I, I'll put more stock in that you know is there do you, is there a room for subjectivity in a review where you get to know the reviewer or is it, is it better to be quite just bland and open. Oh, oh, the latter. I mean, that, I mean, that's the thing is that this is where Rotten Tomatoes kind of gutted the industry is people stopped getting to know their reviewers and started mm-hmm. looking at a number. And it's a number that isn't, doesn't tell you much at all. Like when, you know, exactly. uh, uh, in fact, the thing is, is when you see a movie that is 99% or 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's actually kind of scary. Uh, because it's like, oh, everybody loves this movie. It's like, no, 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 everybody likes this movie. Yeah. You don't know if everybody loves this movie. Yeah. Um, it means it's fine and widely accessible and, and a lot of fun. That doesn't, you know, Scott and I like to talk about the fact that the best movies, the movies that really melt our brain are the ones that usually are sitting in the high sixties to low eighties in the rotten tomato meter. It means it's done enough that uh, a quarter of critics don't like it. Mm-hmm. But the others do. It means it's doing something new. It's doing something different that not everybody is connecting with. And that's interesting. Um, no, I, I herald from the days of when you were supposed to know your credit, um, where that was the whole point was, you know, and I wrote that way. I wrote in a way that uh, I was like, I would write for two different audiences. First would be the audience that lined up with my taste, that when I said a movie was good or I said a movie was bad, you usually agreed with me. Mm-hmm. But I also wrote for people who didn't agree with me. Um, and that's how I managed the forge of the career I had was I would write in a way where I would talk about the elements of the film and say, if you like this or don't like this, this is how you're going to feel. And so people who radically disagreed with me would still read my reviews and come away knowing what my position was and come away feeling like they had gotten something out of that review. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, as and as reviewers, you absolutely need that in that day, in this day and age as well. If you're going to have any lasting um, place in the industry, but that's the that's the problem with film review right now is that it's so poorly read these days that it's very hard to establish that. When when I was coming up, the reviews were what drove all the traffic, and we wrote movie news and and wrote opinion on movie news 
just to fill in the gaps so that give people something to come back to, to give them something else to wake up to in the morning if we didn't have uh, reviews, new reviews on that day. And now it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Now it's all about putting your opinion or spin on the latest Marvel rumor, 90 per, 90% of which are entirely fabricated or, um, you know, uh, repeating people's press releases or covering that stuff because that's what people click on now. Uh, reviews don't drive the traffic anymore. And so sites don't really um, invest in those writers anymore. They don't try to build those reputations up. And it's why we are where we are in terms of movie reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's been reduced to, well, let me look up what the Rotten Tomatoes score is mm-hmm. and yeah. see if it's worth checking out. Uh, if it's an older movie, uh, you know, that's been around for six months, let me check what the IMDb score is and see what that is. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very different piece now, but yeah, you should be getting to know your critic. You should have a couple critics where you know if you agree with them or disagree with them. You know, there's mm-hmm. certain reviewers I know that if one, re- if, if two reviewers I know, uh, love a movie and one hates it, I get really excited because I'm like, Oh yeah, I always disagree with this guy. <laughs> um, and I always agree with these guys. So, uh, I am, I am 100% in on this now. Uh, yeah, there are certain reviewers that if they absolutely loathe the thing, I get really interested and intrigued because I know that they bump against things that I particularly like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, getting to know your critics is essential in, in using critics. That's, that's how it was always meant to be. Yeah. And during that time when you were writing reviews, were you still, uh, writing fiction as well you know how did how did it come about obviously sinister was your was your breakthrough but how, did how that it came out? about was this uh, around 2007 um i noticed a massive shift in the industry essentially in two in 2006 we kind of entered what i call the silver age of the internet you have you, you have the the stone age which is pre-2000 and that's where it was just chaos mm-hmm. um it's before the dot-com crash that we we hadn't figured out what the internet wanted to be yet. And then we kind of hit this golden age where the concept of blogging was invented. And um, and from 2000 to 2006, you saw an explosion of interest in websites and web, web content. And then in 2006, we entered what I call the silver age. And that was where a bunch of people realized, oh, I don't necessarily need to invent my own content. I just need to put my spin on content that's already there. And so we got these sites that are referred to as play journalism sites, which is most of what we have now, mm-hmm. which is someone reports a news story and they go and copy and paste it and write their own paragraph attached to it and say, see, I added new content. So it's not stealing. I am simply putting my <laughs> own spin on the content. You get certain sites like Slash Film, which took it a step further and did a more respectable version, which is having the writers completely rewrite the story and citing the source. But they're essentially just, uh, in most cases, just rewriting the story and adding a line, something like, oh, well, I saw this person's last movie and I thought this, so I have good hopes for this. Uh, and I realized that I went around and talked to a bunch of the webmasters of those sites and said, hey, we need to dial back on this. You need to start going out and finding your own stories or else if you keep doing this, there's not going to be a place for any of us. Mm-hmm. Like it's just going to get so diluted that only the corporations are going to be able to afford interns to rewrite whatever the press releases are or the big news stories are. And everybody just kind of laughed in my face. They just laughed me out of the room. And in fact, there was, I got nicknamed, uh, Cargill Little because the sky is falling. The sky is falling. <laughs> and, 
so in 2000, by, by 2008, I was like, there's not going to be a place for me in five years. You know, I'm going to be some, you know, aging white guy who doesn't have the new fresh opinions anymore. And, you know, is going to be struggling to find some place willing to pay me and I'm not going to make a living wage. And so I realized I need to find a way out. And so I started writing my book, Dreams and Shadows. And I was doing that on the weekend. I was, I was writing for four different outlets at the time. So I was working 60 to 80 hours a week. So this was just what I was doing on the weekend. And it took two years to write the book as a result. Uh, but that's what I was, uh, you know, how I got into it. I was like, look, I'm going to use this platform that I built um, online to kind of hopefully drive a book career and see if I can have a career as a novelist uh, getting out of this and uh, when when everything comes to collapse. And so I uh, um, I wrote that and me and Scott had become friends and Scott heard that I was writing a book and he goes, you gotta let me read it. You gotta let me read this book, man. I want to see what your fiction looks like. And so Scott was the first person to read Dreams and Chatters, read the first three chapters gave me notes on that and then said, when you're finished, I want to read it. And so he read it and gave me some notes and I polished it up after that. And he's like, I want to help you get this made. And I was like, great. And so he was starting to go through the motions to get me connected to some of his book connections. And that's when we both ended up in Vegas uh, on the same weekend. And he had just been approached by two different companies that had this new model. And the new model was, you bring us a really good idea. We give you a million dollars and you get final cut. Uh, and uh, no one was doing that at the time. And he pitched me an idea and said, hey, I'm working on this movie, this concept to pitch. Can I get your professional opinion? I said, yeah, sure. And he me an idea for my opinion. And after that, I said, hey, you know, I've been kicking around this horror movie in my head for a while. Can I tap your knowledge and Get your professional opinion. He was, yes, yeah, sure. You know what? Everybody pitches me at least once. This is your time. Pitch me. <laughs> I, I, and I pitched him sinister. And he just said, holy fuck, I want to make that movie. <laughs> I, I know exactly who wants this movie. This is the movie these guys are looking for. And the companies were Roy Lee's company and Jason Blum's company, Blumhouse. And so literally a week and a half later, I'm in Jason Blum's office pitching him sinister. Wow. And um, he bought it in the room. And Scott was like, ordinarily, I would pay you $50,000, buy the idea, and go write with my writing partner. But me and my writing partner just fell out with one another. Would you want to write this with me? I've read your book. I know you can write. You want to write this and then write my idea, and then we'll see if maybe we want to make this a lasting partnership. And two weeks into writing Sinister, he called me up and he goes, I've never had a relationship like with this with someone before. Would you just be my writing partner? And I was like, yeah. And that's... That is how that all came to be. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. And, and was it not was it not something like six months later you were filming it? I mean, it just seems the whole process was just so quick. It's like the opposite from what you normally hear in these things, and that and that it, must it, have been I, absolutely amazing. It was absolutely. That's exactly what was happening. Is we did we were uh, we pitched it at the end of January. We wrote it in February and March, and we were on set in September. <laughs> um, Brilliant. And how I got Dreams and Shadows sold was I got a uh, a literary agent who sent out my book to 24 different editors and said, Cargill's going to be in, in New York filming his new Ethan Hawke movie. Uh, <laughs> if you want to meet with him, you have a week and a half to get a, uh, a meeting. And uh, acted like I was some in-demand writer <laughs> that they must meet now or, or missing out on. 
And sure enough, I got six meetings out of that and two offers, and that's how Dreams Brilliant. and Shadows ended up at Harper Voyager. Um, uh, but yeah, it happened very quick. And in fact, my manager, who I got, uh, you know, was Scott's manager, who he was just like, are you want a manager? And I was like, yes, please. Um, he was like, by the way, this never happened. This is a story <laughs> that's telling for a long time because you're never going to have a movie come together this quickly again. Like, I have never seen this happen. And just enjoy it while it does. And yeah, it was one of those just rare things. It was just that the the way I pitched the idea to Jason, what hit him so hard, he, he his response. Well, what I pitched was I said, hey, you know this found footage movies? And Jason leans forward and goes, yeah, I make them. And I said, well, this is the movie about the guy that finds the footage. And he just smiles. And he goes, that idea is so good. Someone else is going to have it in six months. We have to make this movie before they do. Mm -hmm. And so he, he he greased the rails to put the rocket on it because he was just like someone else is going to make that movie. We have to beat them to the punch, and mm -hmm. uh, and so that was that's why it moved forward so quickly. I mean, uh, like all great ideas, just as you pitched it there, it 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 seems so obvious and so you know, yeah. Obviously, there has to be a film about that, but yeah, it I can see why. He, he, he decided that had to be made at that moment in time, definitely. And, um, when you were writing that script with, uh, Scott, was that your first, um, process of, of co-writing with someone else? And, and how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. It was. I mean, it's, uh, as with all things, uh, you know, messy at first and you, you get it going. Um, a writing partnership is like a marriage. Uh, so, uh, you know, that first, those first dabbles is dating, you know, do I want to, do I want to spend the rest of my life with this person is a question you have to ask yourself while, while collaborating. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the first versions that were kind of messy, but we found our rhythm and, uh, uh, Scott and I work particularly well together because I'm a night person, like a, a I'm on literally vampire out. I go to bed at seven in the morning, just after the sun's come up. Uh, and, uh, uh, wake up around 2.33 in the afternoon, um, get my day started, answer my emails, do meetings, uh, and then I write all night. Right. Uh, Scott is just the opposite. He was, you know, uh, a dad. Uh, he, uh, would get up at six o'clock in the morning, have his coffee, get his kids breakfast, get them off to school, and then sit down at nine o'clock, uh, and be ready for his work day and ready to write. And so he would, be there at nine o'clock ready to read, uh, the writing that I did overnight. And then he would rewrite that and write new pages and then pass it off to me. We would talk in the afternoon if we would need to. And then he would settle down for the night and I'd be writing through the night. He'd have my new pages and he would revise and we were working around the clock. So when he and I are working hard on something, it's a 24 hour operation, mm -hmm. um, of passing back and forth and working together. Uh, and we work together really well. Um, we've gotten to trust one another, but yeah, at first it was messy and sloppy and plenty of arguments. And why would you do that? And why would you do that? And learning to listen to one another. And we had this great moment where we we're having an argument about what to do with the story and the point of view to be telling it from. And we we're having an argument about it. I just said, you know what this needs to be? And he goes, what I go, it needs to be the changeling. And he goes, oh, the George C. Scott movie. I love that movie. It's like, yeah, it's like, we're only seeing the horror from George C. Scott. There are all these other characters, but we're never in their point of view. We need to do that with Ellison. He's like, oh, yeah. And so he starts talking about the structure of that. And we start building it out from our mutual affection of this movie. And in that moment, we, we realized that's how we had to talk to one. 
we we were both big huge cinephiles and we needed to talk in the language of the films we love and how they work and how they don't work mm-hmm. and from that we forged a thing uh, a rule of the best argument wins of where <laughs> you don't be you don't be precious about your ideas or your thoughts the person with the best cinematic argument wins and you would cite films and go this doesn't work well it works here well yeah it works here because they do this this and this and we're not doing that because if you don't do that this doesn't work well how could we do this this and this here well in this movie they do this and this well, what if we did something like that with and you make those arguments and a lot of the times you'll say oh this has never been done before and it's like yeah it's been done here and here and then it's like oh well how do we do it different and that best argument wins has worked for us for 10 years and and obviously you know when you were working on your reviews you were used to getting notes from editors etc i'm sure but what was it like when you when you got notes from someone like jason blum you know when you get was it was it exciting was it nervous did you agree with a lot of the stuff that you were saying oh well i mean with jason jason's not a he's not that kind of a producer jason isn't a big notes guy occasionally he'll have thoughts but jason is more of a uh, uh, more of an executive producer in that he, he's the money guy who protects his, um, uh, uh, protects his creatives. He's one of those guys who believes you should let your, his create, you should let your creatives be creative mm-hmm. and do their thing. You're working with them because you know their, their talent. Uh, uh, he eventually brought in someone, Cooper Samuelson at Blumhouse after, uh, after we made Sinister who then uh, kind of shepherds things creatively and does those things. Getting notes, it, it's notes are an interesting thing. They are kind of, they they can be terrifying uh, if you approach them wrong. And a lot of people hate notes. Um, I love notes. It's why I love being collaborative. So for me, yeah, it's exciting. For me, the most exciting notes ever was getting to work with Kevin Feige over at Harvard. Um, you know, Feige, 95% of his notes are genius. And he'll listen to you when you bump up against the other 5% of them. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always good at making films better. He just understands how to do it. Uh, so it can be very exciting. Um, but yeah, getting, getting notes is, it's an interesting thing. It's, you're always looking for the note behind the note. Um, some people are really good at giving notes and know that it's always about the note behind the note and they'll point out a problem. Uh, other people will try to solve that problem. And that's your job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, there's a, a screenwriter I know who uh, once told once told off a, a uh, uh, an exec with this and shared that story. And the story's kind of gone viral through the community. But in that, uh, if you give me uh, if you give me problems, I'll give you notes. If you give me notes uh, or solves, I'll, I'll give you fixes. If you give me problems, I'll give you fixes. If you give me fixes, I've got problems. Um, and, uh, essentially, you know, um, uh, I think an, another screenwriter once said in a documentary, if somebody, um, if somebody tells you, asks you, what if we put a car chase here on page 38, oftentimes it's not because they want a car chase. It's because the 20 pages of character development before that aren't working. And that's what you're always looking for. You're looking for what they're really bumping against, mm-hmm. not what they want in that thing because what they want is a personal pace um uh uh it's not a 
actual thing that they want there. They're bumping up against something else. They've got something that's not working for them. And as a result, um, uh, you might have an even better solve than they will. Because that's literally what you're hired to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's that's what you're always looking for with those. Um, and you're trying to dive deep. One of the things I tell a lot of writers is when you use uh, beta writers, that get four or five beta writers and then listen to the notes. And what you're looking for is repeated notes. Mm-hmm. You're not looking for, I didn't like this or this didn't work for me. Uh, because if one person said that it's personal taste, if five people say it, it's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're looking for those constant things that people are bumping up against. And you're looking for those things that they're talking about in different ways that they all are stemming from the same problem. Uh, because you want to learn to find those solutions because notes are there to make the thing better yeah. not to make it more of someone else's work it's there to to improve the work uh to make the better thing and that's what i love working in films it's so collaborative and you've got so many ideas coming in and getting so much feedback that you really do get a chance to make something special and if you take advantage of that you can make something really great it is neil gaiman actually said something that presumably i think in relation to writing books as well but he said I think he said, you know, you can have people can tell you that they've got that something's wrong with something, but they can't tell you what the fix is. You know, which is exactly what you're saying there. Is it's that is your job as the writer to 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 try and solve the solve the problem. And yeah. just just you you've said a few times that you enjoy the collaborative process of um, writing movies, but obviously you write books as well, and that's normally quite a solitary uh, uh, type of writing. Do you like the change in that or, or, or do you have a collaborative way of doing that as well? No, no, no. That's, I mean, that's the thing about writing books is um, I, it's the thing I get to write where I don't have other people battling. Mm-hmm. And I don't have people messing with the ideas. Um, you know, Scott and I both have, we we're, we're a Venn diagram of tastes and uh, sometimes some of my ideas don't fall into that, you know, into that space we share. And that's where I really get to write that on my own and get to say, well, I'm going to write this crazy thing. Uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. do this. Uh, and I enjoy doing that. But even that's collaborative in that you have editors. Yeah. And I am in a space where I have both a U.S. and a U.K. editor. So I get two sets of notes that I'm working off of. I've got two women who are, who are massively improving my books. Uh, and so that's collaborative in that as well. Although it's just, it's radically different, like night and day. It's, uh, it's so crazy to talk to my, cause everyone, in, everyone who's a screenwriter wants to be a novelist and everyone who's a novelist wants to be a screenwriter. Um, and then I tell them about how it works and they, they're baffled. Um, but you know, Hollywood, Hollywood screenwriters like, wait, so you get a, you get a document from your editor that starts off with now it's your book and you can do whatever you want to do with it. But here's some suggestions. Uh, and they're like, wait, that's, they don't say no, we're, we have to do this or we're firing you and bringing in someone that's crazy. That's crazy. Thought. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, uh, and people are always, you know, novelists are always marveling like, wait, no, you, get on a call with five other people and they all have their own things they want you to do. And they tell you do this. They don't suggest it. Like what? That's crazy. Bob. Um, it, they're, they're two radically different experiences, but they're collaborative in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my editor at Harper Voyager has worked with, who would works with Gaiman 
works with Joe Hill, worked with Asimov and, and, and Bradbury, uh, towards the end of their careers. And I'm like, this person has walked with Titans and, and helped them make books. I'm going to listen to this person. Yeah. And her notes are always great. So, um, so it's, it's always an interesting experience. But yeah, writing alone, I mean, solitary, all writing is a solitary experience. Like even my collaboration, I'm still doing it alone in my room. I'm just, it's a difference between me getting daily feedback from Scott or having to read it to my wife to see if it works uh, <laughs> chapter by chapter. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's all solitary in its own way, but it is nice to have that freedom and that for a while. And then I start getting that, man, I really wish I had someone to save my bacon in this scene and come in and have the idea to fix it right away. And then when I'm working, you know, with Scott, sometimes I'm just like, man, I wish I were just writing a book where I could just kind of knock <laughs> yeah. this chapter out and, uh, uh, and move on to the next part and not have somebody rewriting it and trying to fiddle with it to make it work for both of us. So I often like to joke that my favorite, because people will ask me, what's your favorite screenwriting or, or novel writing? And I'll be whichever one I'm not working on. <laughs> um, so that's usually my go-to answer. And are there, are there tips and techniques that you've learned writing scripts you can apply to new novels and, and the same going the other way around? You know, there, is there, is there anything you could like, you could share to anyone of, you know, that, that, that you would advise that maybe they wouldn't know if they haven't written screenplays? I, well, yeah, you know, one of the things I've really like when I got when I first started, um, my novels had a very particular kind of structure to them uh, because I was like, oh, I can do this. I I essentially uh, stole from Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath and applied that to world building in which I would kind of alternate chapters between here's the main narrative and then here's a, uh, a chapter. I found uh, a way in my Dreams in Shadows series, my Colby Stevens series to um, uh, insert uh, world building in between chapters to really kind of give all the context to raise the stakes. Mm -hmm. um, and then did that again in Sea of Rust. And um, and it worked for me and people really liked my books. And then uh, Day Zero came along and I wrote it more like a screenplay. And then all of a sudden people like really connected with Day Zero were like, oh, I. I read it in one read, I sat down, bam, 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 it went. I was like, oh, you know, as much as you can play around with structure in a novel and the audience will be patient with you, they, you don't have to let them be patient with you. You can actually trim all the fat mm -hmm. out in a way you do from screenwriting. Because in screenwriting, I mean, in movies, if you let the audience be bored for a minute, uh, you lose them. You can lose them for the rest of the movie. You could have one slow scene, you know, that's even a short scene, but it's slow. And people will talk about afterwards. Yeah, I liked it, but it really kind of slowed down in the mm -hmm. film, didn't it? Um, that's not a thing that you hear from people reading books. You know, they'll let you take a whole chapter to describe what house looks like. Uh, and as long as you pick up the pace right afterwards, they'll just go along as that was part of the experience. Um, but if you do write a book, like a screenplay and structure it that way and trim that fat and make sure that every word um, is, is, you know, the, the concept in screenwriting is that every word needs to at least develop character or advance the story. Um, that's not the case in, 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 you know, prose. But if you apply that to prose, man, you can make a, uh, make a work that's like a rocket on rails. Uh, but not so much the other way around. Novel writing doesn't inform screenwriting as much because screenwriting is such a particular art form. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it helps in television writing. Uh, and, you know, the development of character, the development of theme, how to uh, play around with ideas, that really works for when you're you're plotting out a season of television uh, and trying to develop TV because t- television works like a novel. Uh, but screenwriting itself, as, as movies go, the, the two are, are very different. And uh, you, you mentioned Day Zero there, which is which is just out recently um, and is a prequel to Sea of Rust. I mean, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I wrote Sea of Rust. Sea of Rust is just kind of a weird idea that I got out of nowhere um, about what it, you know, I love stories about the robot apocalypse, but the problem that I noticed with the robot apocalypse is every single one of those stories, the humans win. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's our point of view. And I was like, what if they don't? Uh, what if we get wiped out by the robots? What would, the, what would that be like? What would the robots be then? You know, what's the point of wiping us out? And uh, um, and so I wrote that book, and that book did very well, and it got me shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and people really dug it. And I was going on to write the third Colby book, and I was asked by one of my editors, hey, this did really well. Do you think you could write another um, science fiction novel? A standalone, something that, you know, not not a sequel, but a standalone in some regard so that we can, you know, get some momentum that you got with the science fiction crowd. And I didn't have any great ideas at the time. And I was sitting with uh, Joe Hill having a beer. And Joe was like, hey, are you ever going to do anything else to see a rust? I said, well, I've got an idea for a novella. And he goes, what is it? And I pitched him my idea for Day Zero. And he said, Cargill, that's your next book. Like, that's it. And the idea was a, a simple one. It was like, what if we went back to the night of the robot revolution and a nanny bot, you know, uh, who ha- uh, is taking a robot that takes care of a child uh, has to decide between protecting the child or joining the robot revolution fighting for his freedom. And Joe is just like, you have to pitch that to Jillian. You have to tell her that's your next book. And I pitched it to a woman who was my editor for a short period of time and now Joe's wife. And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's your next book. Go pitch it to Rachel and went up the chain. And all of a sudden that was my next book. And that's what it is. It's um, it's a book about, uh, you know, a robot caught in the robot revolution and trying to decide if, uh, you know, uh, he should be fighting for his own freedom or to protect this child that he loves and asking himself, is that love real or am I simply just programmed uh, to love this child? Uh, is am I simply following my programming or am I following my heart? And what does that mean? And I sat down to write it. And as I was writing the first part of the book, I was trying to find the overarching themes of the book. And then the pandemic started. And uh, I found myself uh, lined up with a lot of work, um, ready to, you know, hunker down in a house that I'm happy with, with a woman that I love and uh, with, plenty of work to keep me busy and to pay the bills. And I felt extraordinary guilt, um, you know, and privilege for what I was going through and the experience I was having and watching so many of my friends, especially in the film critic career out of work as places were shuttering because there were no movies and there was no income coming in. And so uh, people were getting furloughed left and right. I know a lot of the people at the Alamo draft house um, and they were getting furloughed because there weren't movies and uh, and so I realized that's what one of the big themes of the book had to be about. And so I wrote this satirical version of me and my wife's life during the pandemic 
of being able to live in, you know, these privileged, you know, high walled suburbs, uh, safe from all the madness and craziness and watching these, you know, uh, two very white characters um, drinking themselves into a stupor, watching the robot revolution unfold, unaware that they're hours away from their own death. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that really kind of, once I had that, it kind of catapulted me into what the book was. And I'm really proud of it. It's, uh, it's, it's the first book that I, I've written where, you know, my friends are calling up and going, Oh my God, I, I literally couldn't put it down. I read it cover to cover in a single afternoon. And, uh, and that was kind of the hope when I was writing it, I wanted to write a fun adventure story. Yeah. And that seems to be what I've done. And, uh, um, and it's gone very well. And with novels and with scripts, I suppose, are you someone that plans out in detail before you start writing or, um, do you sort am, of start and, and see where it takes you? Uh, I am halfway between that. Uh, I cannot write something I don't know the ending to. Um, like I have to know the ending and I need to know the major beats in between. I need to know this happens, then somewhere along the line this happens, then this happens, and that brings us here, ending here. Uh, what I like to discover is the little bits along the way. Mm. So I don't fastidiously um, uh, uh, outline but I do know the big beats of the story in between. And then I like to find the character stuff and see how the characters develop and how they play into those big beats and uh, surprising myself along the way. Uh, but I do have to know. Um, I, I can't write like Stephen King and just pants it and then hope I find the ending along the way because it, as, as I, I've written about and talked about a number of times, um, pantsers and planners spend the same about the same amount of time writing but planners spend the time up front at uh, outlining it and spend less time rewriting because they've already fixed the problem ahead of time and pantsers can write quickly because they can write right away but then they spend a lot of that time rewriting as it's like oh this i found the right ending but this and this and this have to be completely revised just to fit that end so you have to go back and rewrite whole chapters i've always been I've always been just completely blown away by screenwriters who write with cards and note cards and then move scenes around. I'm like, how do you move scenes around? Like the narrative starts here and ends here. And if you can move a scene around, then it's not part of that journey. It's somewhat, I don't get that. Um, It has to, like, like, you have to start at the beginning. And by the time you get to the end, it feels like there was no other path but this story. Uh, And that's how I write. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I kind of, I get that base outline and then I sit down and pants it along the way of the little bits. I mean, it, it sounds like it, it must be night and day to compare the, the freedom that you have when you write a novel and, you know, you can plan it all yourself. You know, exactly where it ends is completely up to you, whether that leads on to a sequel is up to you, et cetera. And then you compare it to somewhere, you know, like Dr. Strange working for Marvel in this big machine and you've got to fit this component you're writing into the larger ecosystem. And I mean, I mean, I mean, what's, what's that like for someone who likes to do, do their own planning, having that lack of freedom? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the lack of freedom comes with a support base of all these other genius brains. Like that's the thing is um, uh, it's frustrating when you're working with people. Like I've certainly worked on jobs where like one of the hardest jobs I've ever worked on um, had three different production companies attached to it. And mm-hmm. so we would get wildly different notes from different production companies. And it wasn't until 
the the third draft that we were like, these people are never going to want the same movie. They mm-hmm. all want different movies. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you do that? And it's impossible. Like it's impossible to write a great script when you have three different groups asking for three different films. Um, so that's really hard. But working at a place like Marvel where you have these people that make great content, that know how to make great content, that know the comics. Um, and they're giving you this huge sandbox to play in and go, here's your favorite character, run with it and do something cool, you know? And what if we did this? And what if we played with that? And it was a lot of writing and a lot of rewriting. And I think there's lots of great pages that got left on the cutting room floor and lots of, uh, you know, lots of, uh, stuff that would have been all right, would have been good. But we're then much, much better because, you know, these people were like, yeah, but what if we plus this scene? What if we added a comedy bit here? What if we did this and help us create a movie that I have people ask me about every day? And mm-hmm. so it's a great experience. Um, you know, you have to love collaboration to do that, but I do. It's why I'm in film because I love, I love the fact that, I mean, the big thing that I, I tell young screenwriters is trust the geniuses around you to be geniuses and remember that at the end of the day you're going to get credit for their work um <laughs> you know uh, you know your name is going to be at the end of that and people are going to be like oh i love i love this line oh well i actually didn't come up with that but I <laughs> um you know you get the credit and you get the blame uh and so take advantage of it let those geniuses make you look smarter and once you really give yourself over to that you really enjoy getting it in that regard and working in that ecosphere because Kevin Feige makes me look smarter um, when we work together. Um, so uh, that's just how you have to embrace it. And it was it was a long process. It was a hard process. You know, I worked on that movie for a year and a half. Uh, whereas if you think about Sinister, uh, you know, we wrote that in, it, we wrote that movie in five weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we sold it a week and a half. We wrote it in five weeks. We did our prep. We shot it in in. Uh, 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 September and October, and then by January of next year, a year later, we had a cut of that movie. Um, <laughs> you know, that was a thing. So they're two wildly different experiences, but they're both enjoyable in their own way. And I think your uh, your latest one uh, movie was Black Phone, which is an adaptation of Joe Hill's uh, uh, work. What was it like um, adapting someone else's work was that similar to the sort of Marvel experience, but on a smaller scale in terms of you've got certain things that you have to work with. Well, Black Phone is a weird one. Uh, it's a film. It's a, a story Scott and I have been circling for about ten years. You know, Scott first brought it to me when you know just after we finished Sinister and said, "What if we do this next?" And I looked at it and I said, "This is such a thin story. It's a great story, but." It, it, it's essentially a second act and, and a finale of a movie. We, there's so much building we have to do here and building this out of the character and, and what's going on around that I don't think it's right for us. Um, you know, if we're going to do that much work, we can do that with an original property so we don't have to pay to option it and we don't have to, you know, uh, be beholden to anyone else. And then Scott brought an idea to me um, and said, hey, I want to make a film about my childhood. I want to make a film about you know, how hard it is to be a child, the resiliency of youth. I want to make like my 400 blows. You want to make that on like eight millimeter, 16 millimeter to shoot something cheap and dirty with me? And I said, yeah, sure. I do that. But you know, we've been talking about black phone for a long time. What if we merge those two together? 
And so Black Phone already gave us a, a really good base plot. And then we needed to create all the character and the surrounding elements. And so it was still all of that creativity from another movie, but with the core story that we already love. And so with that part, adapting that was significantly easier than anything else. I, I've adapted other works in the past. Uh, we adapted a video game. Uh, I've adapted a couple of novels. Um, we adapted another, re, doing a remake of a television episode, you know, at one point. So adaptation is something that I'm very familiar with. This was the easiest adaptation of all, um, because Joe wrote just such a great, concise story. And then we just got to build out around it. And then Joe is so happy with the result. Um, uh, I've worked with Joe now. <laughs> Me and Joe's careers are now inextricably linked. He, of course, loves Sea of Rust and helped promote that. Uh, we wrote uh, an episode of Lock and Key together. We were actually going to write an entire season of Lock and Key together. And then the way that came together, they ended up getting a a, a big-name showrunner, and he wanted to put together a writing room instead of having me and Joe do it. We, we got to write an episode together, so I've actually worked with him. Um, so I was familiar with his process and how he thought so that I, I knew when adapting it, how he would feel about certain decisions and the like. And he, of course, you know, um, uh, is as much a fan of me and Scott as we are of his. Mm -hmm. So he trusted us implicitly and said, you guys, take the story, do what you want with it, make the Car Derrickson Cargill version of Black Phone. And that's what we went and did. And, and he's proven very happy with the result. Excellent. It's, it's, it's interesting because, you, you know, you, you, you see how you kind of circled around Black Phone a few times. And, and it is, it's a, it's a fantastic short story. And I can totally see what you mean, how it's a kind of act two. And, and, and you need to build a build around that. And, and how, how at first you were like, I'm not quite sure if we're ready for that yet. And then, and then it was only some time passed the deal mulled over and you kind of realized what how you would build it out and 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 is it important that you that you kind of you do wait until you feel you're ready to write something and it excites you because i know you were am i right in saying you and scott were working on doctor strange 2 and then and then the black phone was just kind of this idea that you were like we can't we can't get this over heads we need to move on to this and 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 but perhaps we put over our best creative foot forward on Doctor Strange too is it, is it or, you know is that quite right is it, is it a case of writing well, what I actually I was never working on Doctor Strange too. Uh, that that got ah, erroneously, right. erroneously reported several times but Scott wanted me to come work on Doctor Strange too so I never openly denied it uh, <laughs> uh, and then and then yeah but so uh, so yeah so I was uh, we had already written. Uh, Black, uh, Black Phone uh, before Scott went off to... Ah, uh, okay. Uh, so it wasn't a... We, he left that and we wrote that. We had already written it and he loved the script. We were sending it out to a couple of other directors and then Scott just was like, we need to stop sending this out. And I'm like, why is it? Because I have to direct this. <laughs> and so we waited for, you know, until he was back uh, to... Uh, to to make it and i was willing to wait for him you know i was really i'm really proud of the script um so i was like all right if you if this is in your heart this is where it is then i'll wait and we'll make this together mm -hmm. and uh, is it something that you want to continue doing working in in both worlds in, in the film world and in the in the novel world as well oh yeah yeah no i mean it's 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 great because Hollywood is is lots of stops and starts. Um, a lot of times you're just waiting, you know, 
you've got a thing you want to do, but you're waiting for an attachment, you're waiting for notes from somebody, you spend a lot of time sitting around. Um, and you can write more scripts, but you've only got so much bandwidth that you can be working on a number of films. And so it's nice to have this book or short stories that you can be working on on the side and be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, while I'm waiting on, you know, notes from the studio, uh, I'll put uh, a couple chapters into this book. Uh, so yeah, I want to, I definitely want to keep doing it. I, I really enjoy, uh, I enjoy having multiple fan bases. You know, I enjoy people who, you know, like my movies, but they, they're readers and they, they, they want my books. They love my books. And I love people who are big cinema fans who just want to see my movies. And they're like, no, oh, you write books too. Oh, that's cool. Um, you know, uh, and then people who just follow me on Twitter, um, you know, and they <laughs> like the writing advice that I give. So, uh, it's, it's great to have that. And, uh, but I just love the format so much and I love the worlds that it lets me dabble in. And, you know, I'm a huge fan, you know, I'm a movie fan, uh, uh, I'm a book fan. And so being a writer gets me, lets me sit at the writing table at the conventions and hang out with the other writers, get to know folks uh, in that world. And, and it's great to be able to have, you know, my toes in, uh, or rather my, my fingers in so many different pies. Yeah. And w would you ever want to <laughs> extend that to more pies? Like, would you ever want to write in graphic novels or comics or anything like that? Uh, yeah. Um, I've gotten that question a lot, uh, from people in the industry. They're like, why aren't you doing that? And I'm like, I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would love to, I'd love to call up Marvel and say, Hey, can I do a run on, some book um yeah. like i would love to work on the x books or i'd love to work on strange or i'd love to you know i love this character that character i would love to do that but i just don't have time fair <laughs> enough i'm looking forward um am i right in saying you've got ultra limits stuff in the pipeline coming down and you've got the dsx movie is that the stuff that you talked about uh, no, no, no. Those are those are as far as I know dead projects. Uh, those oh, were right. a time ago that just nobody's removed them from IMDb. Um, oh, I see. Okay. No, we worked on we uh, we worked on Outer Limits, um, and uh, they tried to they tried to get us on for like a year, and I was just like, I don't know what I want to do with Outer Limits, and finally I was just like, you know what? If you let me remake Demon with a Glass Hand and make that as a movie, I'll do it. Uh, I'm a huge Harlan Ellison fan, and um, mm -hmm. and so that allowed me, that actually. Is how I got to know and befriend Harlan Ellison. Uh, right. Oh wow, cool. Um, and so, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and then with Deus Ex, I really wanted to. I love that game, and wanted to make that. We wrote a script, really proud of it, but it was at a studio that was trying to figure itself out, and in fact, isn't making features anymore. Right. Um, they shuttered up their feature division in I think 2019. Um, and so it was. We got in, and they're like, we want to make big movies, and then. After we had written the script, there was a whole big seven month shakeup of the, uh, producers. And then new producers were in there like, what is this? And it's like, oh, this is this big, uh, this big, uh, video game movie. And they're like, oh, that's not what we want to do. That's not our thing. And so that kind of languished over there, um, for a while. We were disappointed with that. Uh, we were asked to come back and do a possible rewrite on that, but we were literally, we had that conversation where it's like, hey, we're in the finals for Doctor Strange, or we can go and do this. If we do this rewrite, we absolutely have to make this movie. Um, but we don't know if they're ever going to make this movie. But we could possibly get 
a Doctor Strange movie at Marvel. What do we do? And we were just like, let's swing for the fences and, and go for Doctor Strange. And that was kind of the end of our involvement with Deus Ex. We always wanted to see that happen, see somebody yeah. else pick it up and run with it. We were proud of that script. But that just that just never happened. Um, Is that something that, that if, if you're a screenwriter in particular, you have to just accept that you will write stuff that you can be really happy with and really proud of, but it just isn't going to see the light of day because of the industry, you know, what, how it works and stuff. That is the, that is the night and day between novels and screenwriters. Mm -hmm. If you're an established author, anything you write is probably going to get published. Yeah. Uh, You'll find somebody who will, you know, no, if Joe Hill shows up with a book, uh, people are going to say, yeah, we'll publish it. Um, But as a screenwriter, no, it's such as only a small percentage of what you write ever sees at the screen. I've written, I think, 24 films professionally, um, but only five of them have gone into production. Mm-hmm. Um, That's nuts, yeah. It, it's, it's crazy that when, when you, as you say, you have that so many more people involved in, a, in the film side, that so many more people that have to go through and check a box that would get ticked. Whereas when you write, you write a novel, it's just, it's just you and the computer for a, you know, for a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, and with, uh, and with novels, if you write a novel that's, kind of like another novel going on somewhere else, nobody's going to go, oh, well, we can't do that yeah. now. But yeah. with a movie, it'll be yeah. like, oh, you know, one of the big things is people will love your script and it's like, oh, we love this, but we're developing something that's too close to this right now. So we can't <laughs> do it. So the people that could get it made won't because it's just shared a couple of ideas like something else they've got going on. And so, yeah, things will just die that way. Um, and it's rough. It's, you know, heartbreaking. And it's, but it's why you've got to churn and burn as a screenwriter mm-hmm. is always be writing new scripts, always be finding other opportunities because you never know which one's going to go. Yeah. And so, um, what, what is next in the pipeline that you're, you're able to talk about? If anything, um, what am I able to talk about? Uh, well, I mean, one of the big things is we, um, uh, uh, you know, me and Scott started up a production company of producing. The app. I get to be on the other side of the desk. Cool. Um, uh, and so, uh, I'm producing a lot of stuff. We've got, uh, some television stuff we've sold recently. Scott and I have a show called Midnight Radio that we'll be talking about, uh, further in the future, but we're really proud of that. Uh, we're producing a Labyrinth movie, uh, oh, cool. that Scott is hoping to direct. Nice. Uh, it's a sequel to Labyrinth. Um, and we're really excited about that. That's going very well. It's so cool getting to work with the Henson Company. Oh, brilliant. So, you know, all, all the puppets, et cetera, again, all the, all the proper old school tech. That's cool. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, we've got a deal over at Blumhouse and we're making a bunch of just various TV things over there. Um, and, uh, we've got some big announcements coming up. It's, you said, what do you talk about? It's like, oh, not much. <laughs> uh, working on a lot, have a lot going on, but not a lot that, that I can full on talk about at the moment. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, it's it, there's I've oh I I have not been not writing for like the last four years, um, so it's I've always I'm always two projects behind, uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's where it is. But yeah, uh, the big new thing is Black Phone comes out in January, January twenty eighth, uh, and we're really proud of that. And uh, Scott and I are currently we're shoring that up while we plan what we're doing as our next thing. Great. So, awesome. Uh, we'll definitely be, there's lots of stuff coming out and lots of news that will be coming out of this.
Um, what was the last book that you read? Uh, the last book I read, uh, well, I'm, uh, uh, I'm currently in the middle of write, uh, reading, um, Becoming a Writer, Staying a Writer by J. Michael Straczynski. Um, oh, cool. Uh, I've always, I, I love reading books by other writers on writing. Um, there's usually some, some kind of nuggets that you can glean mm-hmm. that'll make your life a little easier. And it's really good so far. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's all, it, it's not a typical how to write book. It's uh, a meditation on the career itself, which coming from someone like Joe is mm-hmm. huge. Um, it's a really big, uh, you know, this, here's, here's a guy who's been working, uh, uh, in the industry. This is his fourth decade. Uh, he's yeah. written comics. He's written television. He's written children's shows. Uh, who's, you know, written very dark adult stuff. Like he, He's got that career, and so learning from him uh, is uh, 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 is highly recommended. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> and uh, what about the last film that you watched? Last film that I watched, uh, I watched a movie last night uh, called The Space in Between, uh, which is uh, there's no. It's not a widely known movie. It's a smaller piece. I watch a lot of indie films, a lot of smaller stuff. Um, I spent a lot of time trolling uh, the Amazon new releases for things <laughs> I have not heard of, uh, that, that that somebody dropped the ball in marketing. But it's a Kelsey Grammer movie um, oh. where Kelsey Grammer is playing uh, an old, burned-out uh, 70s musician who um, has just kind of gone off the deep end. What's really neat about it is you know, Kelsey Grammer sings, and all the music's done by Rivers Cuomo. Um, uh, and so I was like, oh, well, that's enough cred to get me to watch it. And it's, a, <laughs> it's an adorable little movie about, a, it's set in 1996, about um, a kid working in the mailroom who gets a chance at a shot. He really wants to be a music manager, and he gets a shot at possibly getting his foot in the door at, at his job if he can go and get this crazy old 70s musician to sign a contract terminating his his uh his contract at that music company but everybody that has been sent to do this job before has never come back uh they've never shown up to work again and so it's this whole you know and of course what happens is he goes and the guy's like trying to wheel and deal with the guy and doesn't realize that he's drinking uh, uh electric sprite um and of course goes on this hallucinatory trip with this guy and then forms a relationship with him. And it's a kind of a coming of age film set in the nineties about the music world. And it's, uh, and it was delightful. It had a, it, it did exactly what I wanted of a movie like that. It gave me a scene I'd never seen before. A bit of like really clever dialogue where I just have much respect for the writer. Um, you know, as, as, uh, as the old saying goes, a good movie is three, uh, three great scenes and no bad ones. And this one had three great scenes. So I was like, all right, you know what? Uh, it was a good movie. Great. So, yeah. It is funny sometimes. I've, you know, you're going through like your Netflix or Amazon Prime scrolling through and you see a film that you've never heard of, but it's mm-hmm. got like two or three big name actors in it. And you think, how, how has this totally slid me by? Like, is that a case of just the marketing wasn't there or it just, I don't know how that happens. Well, sometimes it's because bad. That's the concern. You're like, wait, how <laughs> yeah. did I not hear about a movie with this cast? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then sometimes you find something like this. It's like, oh, I see why this is, 
you know, this is what they, they, this movie didn't reinvent the wheel. It doesn't do anything, you know, splashy. It's not something that would have done super great at the box office. It's exactly that film that got made uh, and sat on the shelf during COVID. And someone finally said, yeah, we're never going to find it's too late. It's been sitting on the shelf too long. It's not going to be a festival play. Let's put it out, you know, on VOD. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sometimes that just happens. Sometimes, you know, films get screwed over in different ways. Sometimes it's, there's a famous case in 2008 where uh, a producer got fired from Lionsgate and um, all his, the last three films that he was executive producer on, the new guard decided to dump all of those as a, uh, as a middle finger to him. Uh, and Jeez. those films, those films famously got dumped and are all now, you know, well known in the horror film world because two of them are, are cult classics now. And one of them is that one, that's really good. That's just that never got to play. But it was Repo, the Genetic Opera, Midnight Meat Train, and uh, The Burrows, and mm-hmm. all three of those movies just got dumped because of studio politics. Mm-hmm. And those filmmakers all got screwed as a result. And so sometimes you never know what it is. So you have yeah. to sometimes roll the dice with one of those movies and go, "All right, this could be bad, but it could be good." And then you get delightful little surprises like the space. Yeah. And uh, what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching at the moment? Ah, uh, Loki. Oh, I mean, nice. Oh, nice. I'm, uh, I'm I mean, waiting to save that so it's all there and binge it in one day. I think is it good so far? Yeah, I, 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 tr- I would prefer to do that, but the internet ruins everything. Yeah, yeah totally. I, I've so already true. had two things from this week spoiled for me because people cannot keep those spoilers to themselves. Uh, you know, Marvel gets the biggest. Um, the biggest number of hits out of anything is why there's so many invented stories and so many taken out of context stories is because people will click on anything Marvel related. And so you get a lot of push and it's like, Oh, well, Loki is now this, the first, this character in, uh, in the Marvel universe. And it's like, wait, why did you, why did you ruin that in a headline? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have to watch them as quickly as possible. And sadly, because of just how busy my week is, I'm, a day behind, and I've already had some things for it, so I gotta, <laughs> I gotta watch this week's episode tonight. But I'm loving it. Oh, awesome, cool. Um, well, that's the that's the main question. But the very very last thing we do is a super quick fire, either or, and I always say there's no right answer apart from one of them. But the the first one is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween. Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, Marvel or DC? Marvel, always. <laughs> Uh, I love, I, don't get me wrong I love DC <laughs> but I was a Marvel kid so uh, TV or cinema cinema um, a fancy restaurant or a takeaway fancy restaurant uh, especially I, I want to takeaway but I would if you had put diner in there I would have taken diner <laughs> okay but I prefer to eat at a restaurant over taking the weapons. Okay. Especially uh, post pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, real book or ebook? Real book. Oh, yeah. I'm afraid that was the wrong answer there. But, uh, I, I do enjoy I, I do enjoy reading a, 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 on an iPad every once in a while, but because I read so many scripts that way, it sometimes feels like work. Mm. Whereas uh, fair enough. a book never feels like work. Yeah, fair point. That's uh, I accept the answer. That's (laughs) 
Oh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. There was a lot of that kind of ticked a lot of the nerd nerd boxes for me. He's worked on some really interesting stuff. Yeah, and it sounds like he's got some really cool stuff in the pipeline. I mean, the Black Phone especially is one I'm really excited for. Yeah, the the Joe Hill short stories, great, but interesting the way he said that they're they're sort of spinning it to 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 mm. make a, a feature length film. So that will yeah. be really interesting. And I, I, I thought it was interesting what you were saying as well about being a screenwriter is that you know you you work on movies you'll write stuff that you're really proud of and happy with but it might never see the light of day even though you sell it yeah you know? it, it it ties in a lot with with what some other guests have said recently about the difference between books and films and mm-hmm. you do have to have a thicker skin you know when you're writing for films so much stuff you write gets chucked or just never gets used or mm-hmm. the feedback's poor. It's, it's You have to have a thicker skin when you write for film or TV compared to books. You know, you're know, you not writing for yourself. You're really just feeding a machine and it's up to so many other people what happens to it. And it's it's, it's, a, whole, it's a whole different beast. Yeah, and I, I think obviously he's got a foot in both camps, which is, is as he's saying, mm. sort of it's a good way to deal with that because he, ha- he can go back to the book writing as well while he's waiting for notes or whatever for, in terms of, or waiting for screenplays to move forward. But it must yeah. be difficult, you know, if, you, if you've written that, that what you think is a, oh, yeah, you spend a great time and effort. film and, it's, it, and you actually yeah. sell it, but then just sits on a shelf and the producers yeah. change and it never gets made. It's, it's a pretty And there's nothing you can industry. do. You can't yeah. put it out yourself. No, because, exactly, you know, yeah. Like you can with books. So, yeah. And it, it, it's funny, there's it's a lot of similarities, I thought, between what he was saying and what Helen O'Hara was saying recently about, you know, getting your foot in the door, you know, writing for websites, mm-hmm. making a name for yourself, finding a way into film sets, etc. You know, it's it's all about trying to find those opportunities and create those opportunities if you if, if you can to try and get yourself noticed. De- definitely. Although, as he said as well, the, the, you know, he, he was there at the start of it all and oh, it, yeah, was, it was, it was, was maybe easier yeah. to do that nowadays. Um, you know, I think the access in that sort of way is, is much more difficult. Uh, and you don't, you know, I think what he was saying about, you know, reviews not being the thing that draw people in anymore is probably right, which is a shame. Yeah. You know, people just want to read the regurgitated press releases from Marvel and things now. And actually getting good reviews, good reviewers that you trust, or, you know, you might not agree with everything they say, but you understand their taste and that then informs you. That's that's what's interesting. And that's how you can get access yeah. to, you know, People will give you access to film sets, and and you know you'll meet lots of people that if you want to be a screenwriter, it's invaluable. Oh, totally. And I think I definitely agree that the type of reviews I or reviewers I enjoy reading is where you kind of get to know them and their tastes. And even if you don't know them, if they make it clear in the review what they didn't didn't like, why they didn't didn't like it, etc. So you can you don't have to agree with their opinion, but you understand where they've come from, and and that helps you make up your own mind. And, and there is something to be said about having a bit of personality in in, in that. As opposed oh, definitely, to, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, know, that, that's true of any type of review. You know, there's a real skill to writing a review. That's what yeah, totally. some of the best food cregs, you know, they can be horrible mm-hmm. to the, some of the restaurants they're in, but they're actually, you know, they're, <laughs> they're pieces of art themselves in, what, in the way they're written. And, you know, it can, yeah. and good reviews can really make you salivate for the food and, 
you know, it, it, yeah. it is a skill in itself to do that. And you need your own consistent voice as a reviewer as well, yep. I think. Yeah, and it's, it's also so true. It was ever since he said it, actually. I've, I've really noticed it, which is so many times on websites, whether it's tech news, mm-hmm. film news, whatever, it is just regurgitated press releases. Like, yeah. it's the same information on every website because they've obviously just taken what the company said and changed the words on, you know, here or there. But it's largely the exact same facts. There's no input there's no expert um a layer of expert knowledge put into it which is kind of what i would expect and that's why i want to see well i get what the facts are about this phone that's coming out or this film that's coming up but what's the insider knowledge that i don't have what's the, what's the ex what's the extra stuff and, and often that extra stuff isn't isn't there and it's it's boring when you just read the same regurgitated press stuff over and over again and that is something which i so I think when you get a website or a film reviewer, et cetera, that, that puts that opinion in, that, that's that's really good. I really like that. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thanks very much to Cargo for coming on the podcast. And um, as we said in the interview, Day Zero is not long out, so you can pick that up. And obviously Black Phone is coming out soon, and it sounded like he's working on lots of other stuff that we'll see soon as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but shall we get to the email, Tarek? Yes, let's let's pull up the email. This was an email that was sent in from Mr. James James Buckley, uh, who sent us a lovely email the other day there, and um, and I'll, I'll read out a little bit of it here for everybody. And he said, as a serious writer and someone always trying to improve my craft, I'd like to hear a little bit more about craft on the podcast. Things like pacing, prose, and fiction or novels. Um, and he does say, on the other hand, I think it's always hard to talk about craft, hard to pin it down and, and explain it. And and his his idea is basically that asking guests to suggest one or two novels or one or two authors uh, who have taught them the most in terms of craft. Um, and that's an interesting idea, you know, asking, because I think he's right, craft is a difficult thing to talk about and pacing and prose style, Yeah, definitely. And, I, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, we obviously speak to people about sort of structure and stuff, which touches on that. But I think knowing their influences could definitely be, be helpful to people. And obviously, uh, Cargo said there that he had just said that he'd uh, started reading the J. Michael Straczynski uh, Becoming a Writer and Staying a Writer book, which mm-hmm. sounds really interesting um, because he's someone that's worked in comics and TV and film. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, definitely, uh, James, I think that, I think that's a, a great suggestion. It's something we'll definitely try and incorporate uh, into future interviews. Uh, speaking of which, we have some great guests, plural, next week. We do indeed. Next week, we're chatting with a double act. We've got Abir Mukherjee and Vasim Khan on next week, who, uh, was, I have to say, it was a lot of fun chatting with them. It really it was. was. And, and yeah. as well as being two uh, best-selling prize-winning authors, I think, uh, they, they also uh, host their own podcast, The Red That's Hot right. Chili Writers. That's right, The Red Hot Chili Writers. Yeah. And actually, just, uh, our, our guest from podcast. last week, Imran Mahmood, sometimes appears in that podcast as well. <laughs> it's all just a very closed gentleman's club we've entered we're now inside the inner circle I think Mark exactly exactly well <laughs> but it, it really is a, a great fun chat and also really interesting uh, and a bit different I think because there, were, there was more than one guest uh, I, I think it lent itself to a bit of a different conversation but also still you know learning a lot from them as well so please do try yeah. and tune in for that one Um before we go, as ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you could take time to rate it on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use, that would be great. 
And as always, if you'd like to send in a question or comment, much like James did this week, you can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.